so often we build our stories, including the concept of what's that pull through message you want to be above all else? And how do you build the talking points that support that? But we think of ourselves as the audience. We're building it for ourselves, but we are not the audience. So the second critical component of building a story is to envision the audience to whom it is being told. Couldn't possibly explain where our competitor does that. What we do is X, Y, and Z. And the same goes for productive dialogue. Someone will say, well, all you people think this. And you can either say, well, here is why I think that. Or you can say, I don't think that. And I don't know who thinks that or why they think that. So what else you got, right? <laughs> because you're not going to speak for other people. Welcome to season five of the Making a Marketer podcast with your hosts, Megan Powers with Powers of Marketing and Jen Cole with Now Marketing Group and Xstand. This show is for all levels of experience talking marketing and business with the best guests in the industry. It's important to keep up on the latest trends and topics and this is just the spot. Two guarantees, you will learn and laugh. Here we go. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 95 of the Making a Marketer podcast. I am so excited to be with you live today. Thank you for um, those of you who join us on the live. I know I publicized this a little bit later than I intended. So there will be magic in the replay. And of course, it's an audio first situation since it's a podcast. So the podcast will be published um, within a few days. And I want to welcome my guest, Alisa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having me. I meant to ask you before we came on, Camahort Page? Yes. Is that how you say it? Yes, okay. Camahort Page. That's perfect. Okay. I pride myself on saying people's names properly, so I normally like to ask in advance. And this show is made possible by Powers of Marketing. We focus on strategic content creation, including podcast and event production, of course, um, hosting and am seeing. And I don't know if I said it, I am Megan Powers <laughs> with Powers of Marketing. When we're live and I see my name on the screen, sometimes I forget to say that. So <laughs> hopefully our listeners know my voice by now. But after 95 episodes, we're in the process of booking our 100th guest, our 100th episode guests right now. So that'll be really exciting. All right. So I'm going to read your bio. This should be fun. Alisa Camel. <laughs> yeah. It's always nice to hear it back, right? <laughs> Alisa Camelhart Page was the founding CEO of Blog Her Inc. She and her co-founders took Blog Her from grassroots movement to national women's media brand. After bootstrapping for two years, they raised four rounds of VC funding and achieved exit by acquisition. Through Bloghurst community practices and her own, Elisa built community, grew a business, and championed inclusivity in words and action at the intersection of content, community, and commerce. Elisa's past speaking engagements include TEDx, South by Southwest, and the headquarters of Coca-Cola, Google, LinkedIn, and Logitech, just to name a few. She had many more on the list. <laughs> and her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Mashable, San Jose, Mercury News, and foxnews.com also, just to name a few. And Elisa and I were just talking, and we have San Jose in common. Yep. So that's fun. <laughs> yes, yes. I, uh, oh, I was just by, there too. Oh, cool. Where are you now? I didn't realize you weren't here, here. Oh, yes. Originally from there, I live in San Diego. Oh, that's where my husband is from. So 
More oh, connections. Fabulous. By the way, I was the founding COO, not EO. Just oh, I apologize. Clarify. I misread it. I misread it. I always got to give props time. to my partners. Yeah. No, absolutely. Sorry about that. Yeah. I've even mispronounced someone's name when it was spelled correctly on the notes. So, you know, sometimes <laughs> when we make mistakes and we got to show ourselves some grace and yeah. all that kind of good stuff. So thank you for pointing that out. I want to say hello to Jen Cole. She's my co-host on every other episode and she is in the chat. She's joined us today. So thanks, Jen, for being here as always. Okay, let's dig in. So obviously you love a good story. So I'd like to, if you'd be willing to tell your story prior to blog her, because I feel like your bio kind of starts there. And obviously there's a whole lot to you that led up to that. Seems like a starting point, but what got you there that got you here and that our listeners might be able to learn from? Oh, absolutely. I have a very checkered past. I like to use sometimes fancy words and I like the word peripatetic, which I learned from a chorus line. It's in a song in a chorus line, which means someone who sort of does a lot of different things and is very dynamic in that way. And that was really my past. But I think there are some lessons there that I've certainly learned. And the first one is that after a kind of rapid being good at school and really liking school, somewhere around puberty, I did not like school and was no longer engaged in school and was pretty unmotivated. And I stayed that way. I stayed that way through high school. I stayed that way through college. Now, my disengaged and unmotivated meant that I got some C's. And in my family, that was very unheard of. My brother and sister were both 4.0 valedictorian types, and I was not. And so I don't want to misrepresent that I was completely flunking out or anything, but I was just super average and happy to be so. And so I got a lot of you're not living up to your potential and you're not applying yourself and all those things. And they were absolutely right. And I often like to tell parents that so that in case they have a kid that they just can't understand why they're not applying themselves or why they seem unmotivated, that maybe it's just the traditional schooling. Maybe it's just not where they're going to shine. Maybe it's just going to stay that way and they're going to get through and then go on to different formats and different approaches in life that work for them more. Because I definitely feel like even through college, I knew I had to go to college. I went to college. I got out of college. You know, I graduated, but it wasn't what turned me on. And I think part of it was because I thought I knew my life plan. I thought once I got into high school and got into theater and choir, I totally threw myself into that. That's where I applied myself. And I went to college, but didn't think it was really necessary for me to do what my dream was, which was to move to New York and pursue Broadway dreams, which I did. And then the second thing that happened that's kind of a lesson is that at about 25, after living in New York for four years, I decided I was wrong. Like, I don't want to stay here and indefinitely pursue this life. I had learned a little more about what went into really being successful there. And I was both naive and jaded at the same time. I was jaded in that I realized, oh, it doesn't matter if you're willing to work hard and or even if you have talent, it's who you know, and it's timing and it's luck. And there's all these things you can't control about it. And I was naive because I didn't realize that applies to any <laughs> anything you do, any industry. That's so true. But I just decided I missed California. You know, I missed my family. I missed the weather, which was a bigger part of it than I used to like to admit. <laughs> and I just realized I didn't, I wasn't going to do that, that did, that I would still engage in it, but it didn't have to be this singular outcome that would mean I was successful. So what do you do when you're 25 and the thing you've spent the last 12 years saying, that's all I want to do. It's all I care about. I think there are a lot of different ways you could 
could go. For me, I felt liberated to like try anything or do anything because none of those things were going to be what I had planned. So they were all equally, they all had the potential to be equally good or equally bad. And so I came back to California. I leveraged my network, which at the time was mostly family-based. And I got a job in the commodities industry. And then the third lesson is that I realized I looked around me. We didn't have the remote working situation available to us that we had now. And everything was on the phone and all the companies were based in Chicago and New York. And I realized, wow, I'm not going to have a lot of job mobility if I stay in this location. What's big in this location? I knew I didn't want to move. So what's big here in Silicon Valley? Wouldn't you know, it's tech. Maybe I should figure out if I have aptitude for that. And so the lesson there was that I almost started over. I was 32, I think. And I took a job as an admin in the marketing department of a tech company to try it out, to see, I mean, I didn't really know, to see if I had aptitude for it, to see if I liked it, to see if I could succeed. And I just took a step back and started over because I wanted to completely change. And that was the that was the price I had to pay to jump industries was to start over. And maybe if I was 50, I wouldn't need to start over in quite the same way. But I had to give something up to just be accepted into an entirely new world. And that all took me into tech, which is how ultimately I started BlogHer a few years later. And then luck and timing really helped me because it was the start of the dot-com boom. So, you know, the thing right. I complained about the most bitterly was definitely something that at the right time worked for me. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's so interesting. Thanks for sharing that. That's like, I have, my road has been circuitous. Is that a word? That's mm, a good word too. I um, like that. Multi-hyphenate is like a new term, apparently, that also, because you and I are both, I think that like, yeah. you know, have uh, ability to do different things. But I also love that you, like our friend, Chad Ia Peterson, who is, he's going to be on here next month, who's going to talk about storytelling. He also has a theater background. It's so, I love that um, parallel there between you and he. That's very cool. And starting over at like 30 is, to me, that's a big deal. I mean, I, I started out a tech writer in tech. And obviously we used to call it high tech. I recently realized I sound like a dinosaur when I say that. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh, I belong in the marketing department, but it was hard to make my way over there. Mm -hmm. So I totally feel that. But yeah, going from theater to tech, those are definitely um, different things. Well, I always like to be a big advocate. People talk a lot about like sports and team sports particularly as being such a huge character and skills builder for young people, for teenagers, for young adults. And I'm like, theater has all of that with two, I think, additional advantages. It has all the teamwork, creating something out of nothing, you know, the learning to get along with lots of different kinds of people and work towards a common goal. You're also, although it's not injury-free, it's less chance for catastrophic injury. And (laughs) theater and music tends to attract a real diversity diverse group of kids or young adults. And a lot of times people gravitate there who need to find their place. And I don't necessarily want to say uh, the island of misfit toys or something, but you're going to have some people who, and you learn to work in teams with people who are very different from you in many different ways. And that's very important today to know how to do that. For sure. Love all of that. 
All right. So let's talk about media a little bit. So, so many people aren't familiar how to, how to pitch a story to media. You know, I like to say, I often get asked, do you do PR or they think that marketing and PR are the same thing. So, and I have to explain that while, while I'm able and I have like, I'll write a press release, I'll reach out to people in the media, but I don't have those contacts, those relationships that people who are like really right. PR pros do. So I would love it if you could share with our listeners some insight on whether somebody is a newbie or a seasoned PR pro, like, like how can they put their best foot forward and not blow a media opportunity when you when you make those initial reach outs? Well, you're so right to point out the relationships because those are the key. I used to get this a lot with Blogger that people would want to reach out to bloggers, the ones they thought were the A-list. And I always used to tell them there is no A-list. There's only your A-list. And what does that mean? That means who are the people who already care about the problem you are trying to solve? Who are the people who are already walking this beat, who talk about your area? And in the case of reporters, whose job relies on knowing what's going on in your area of focus. And then, you know, it's easier than ever to build a relationship with them. Read their work, comment on it, share it, follow them on social media, talk to them keep them posted on what you're up to. You aren't going to necessarily reach out to a reporter and get a profile story, you know, from day one, but you can make yourself a source to them. You can make yourself a resource and then, you know, you can build the kind of relationship that will often result in then you getting some karmic payback in the form of they're there and ready to listen when you have a real story to tell. I think also don't be the PR person who cried wolf. Really ask yourself, what is newsworthy about this announcement. It's okay to announce things and not expect a ton of press for them if it's just a sort of drumbeat of news so people know you're doing things and you're up to things. Not everything you announce, not everything you do is actually quote unquote newsworthy. Right. You know, so really ask yourself if you were a reporter, would you, what would be the thing that was newsworthy about this? And save your real ask. Save when you're going to draw on that social capital you've built by building a relationship. Save that for when you know there's an actual story there and not just a press release. Because most most reporters aren't some, don't get me wrong, some people still print press releases like it's news, but the ones you really want, don't do that. Right. No, for sure. And Jen mentioned social media makes it so much easier to build relationships with journalists, sometimes undervalued. Yeah. Well, it's like anything else. People just want a shortcut, right? So yeah. like social media should not try to take a shortcut there because you will quickly, you could quickly, <laughs> you know, make yourself unappealing. Um Right. Yeah. And she also mentioned that her seventh grader is loving theater at school. Oh, good. Um, so I think everything you said resonated with I, the people that I know, you know, who I was in choir, but people I know who are like full on in theater. I think that, yeah, I, a lot of what you said um, really resonates there. Very cool. Okay. So I mentioned we have a show coming up next month where we're going to be talking about storytelling. And I, initially when we were kicking around what the topic of your show should be, you know, and that occurred to me later, like surely no one has a monopoly on what it takes um, to make a good story, right? So I would love if you'd share some tips on helping our listeners craft their story, whether it's for a job interview or a sales call or a business pitch, a media engagement, um, any of that stuff. Story is key, right? 
Yes. And this is the topic that I have a new course on Gen Connect U that's going to be on LinkedIn, which is delves into this deeply. But I will say that to delve into it lightly, that I think mm. we we kind of know the components of a good story, find a conflict or a problem and an aha moment or a solution and to find a moment of recognition or relevance. But so often we build our stories, including the concept of what's that pull through message you want to be above all else? And how do you build the talking points that support that. But we think of ourselves as the audience. We're building it for ourselves, but we are not the audience. So the second critical component of building a story is to envision the audience to whom it is being told. And that's how your story can kind of adapt. And you should find ways. Your story should actually adapt when you're talking to a different audience. So what is the persona of the audience you think you're talking to. And it's okay to pre-think about, okay, well, who I really want to talk to are these two kinds of personae. And I'm going to build my story with them in mind. Well, let, let's say you get an opportunity for a third kind of audience. It's perfectly fine then to say, okay, well, how do I need to adapt that for them? You don't just bring them the same story. So I think a lot of times we forget about the component of who's listening to the story, who's hearing the story, and how do I find that moment of relevance and reaction and recognition with them. And that's what will make each individual story told the most compelling. Very good point. I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. We think about repurposing our content, but I always think of it in terms of platform and mm -hmm. type, not in terms of the who. So those are really great points. And, and something, as you started to talk, I thought, oh, I, I think I remember, I don't do a great job of this, but reversing it. In other words, like don't give it all away in the beginning. We kind of want to like to make sure that they understand they're going to get value out of this. We kind of like tell them the end yeah. of the story at the beginning. Yeah. So creating some tension and kind of like anticipation to what's going to come in the end is probably a, a well, you know, going back to theater an Aristotelian, yeah. like how a story is built in drama is that you have a conflict, you have the conflict build, you have the climax where there's a resolution and then a denouement where things kind of sort themselves out. The climax doesn't come in the first 10 minutes, you know, it comes, it comes an hour in, in a, in a play and you don't want to do that, but you, you want to hold back a little. You want to like get, have a little mystique going a little bit. Yeah. And I think we just, in business writing, we forget that, yeah. but it applies there as well. Yeah. I love it. But without being clickbaity, you know, with right. um, subjects and titles and stuff, <laughs> I'm not too clickbaity anyway. I mean, you know, there's a little, there's gotta be a little bit of that to get, to gain the attraction, mm -hmm. but yeah, I feel burned quite often. <laughs> mm. <laughs> on the yeah. You don't want to do that. Business. Yeah. So in our show prep, you mentioned the advice I give for engaging with press has much in common with the advice I give for having productive conversations with people with whom you disagree. So and I read that in her email yesterday and I just had gotten off a call where we had had a actually it turned out to be a miscommunication, not a disagreement. But anyway, what ways are they related? Well, so these are steps that I often share with folks during media training. And then I realized they apply very much to having constructive dialogue across a divide of ideological divide. And the first, I think, applies to what you just said. You found out you had a miscommunication, not a disagreement. So the first um, point is don't assume and listen before you start. So I can't tell you how many times people answer a question a reporter never asked 
And in so doing, they open up an avenue of inquiry, no matter how well prepared they are. They open up an avenue of inquiry that the reporter now is interested in, but maybe wasn't going to be until you made them go, huh, why, why'd they jump to that conclusion? You know, So don't assume right. you know what the angle or position of the other person is. Don't assume you know why they have a particular angle they're pursuing or a particular position. So I ask a lot of questions like, can you tell me more about that? Well, why do you think that? Or why, you know, what are you trying to get at around that? I don't assume. And I will say that reporters, their job is to get something not prepared out of you because they can read your website. They don't have to even talk to you. So there's a tension. There's an automatic tension there of them trying to get something unique and differentiated out of you. And so there's a lot of open-endedness about what they do. And they're looking for you to assume and speak without they're looking for the angle. So don't assume, just listen. The second one is speak for yourself or your company. Don't try to speak for others. So the exception is if you have data, if you know data really well back and forth and you can talk about statistical truths, great, go for it. Obviously you're, you're speaking for groups in aggregate, right? But often people will share an opposing or different viewpoint with you and ask you to explain it. And you can't possibly. And so I that is what I say. Well, I couldn't possibly explain where our competitor does that. What we do is X, Y, and Z. And the same goes for productive dialogue. Someone will say, well, all you people think this. And you can either say, well, here is why I think that. Or you can say, I don't think that. And I, I don't know who thinks that or why they think that. So what else you got, right? <laughs> because you're not going to speak right. for other people. You speak for yourself, your experience, your product, your company, your career, whatever it is. You've always got to bring it back to your, what, I don't know about that, but what I can tell you is this. So that keeps you in control of your talking points and trying to ensure your pull-through messages hit. And the last thing I will say is evangelize, don't proselytize. Now, if you look up the dictionary definition of both those words, it's pretty similar. It's all about conversion. But you notice, Mm -hmm. you know, proselytize has a much more negative connotation in today's parlance than evangelize does because evangelize was kind of adopted by the tech industry as a thing about, you're just trying to show everybody how great something is. So I always think, I would much rather tell you what I'm for, what I believe in, what I uh, support and why than spend my time tearing down my competitors, tearing down someone who disagrees with me. You don't get very far when all you can do is attack others. And there are obviously some notable exceptions, but most people can't get away with trashing their competition and still smelling like a rose. It betrays weakness. And I think the same can be said for an argument with someone. If all you can do is tear them down and you can't talk about what you believe in and what you're for and what you support, I just don't think you'll get very far. So it's at the core is, is really knowing why you're there and what you're for, not what you're not trying to be or what you're against. Right. All great tips. Yeah. And I, so a couple of things came to mind just now was a, you know, in a job interview, an interviewer trying to take you down a negative road. So that, that's great advice for, for turning that around, for trying to not speak poorly of, you know, any former employer or about any individual, right. you know, as you're giving an example of the worst thing that ever happened to you at work or whatever, right. you know, sure. So we all now, have those. You know, you're not, I'm not saying that when someone asks you, oh, what's your worst quality, which is just a stupid interview question to ask. I would never no, ask absolutely. it, yeah. but they do ask yeah. you that all the time. And so it doesn't, oh, I'm just, I'm just too dedicated. I'm just too, I work too hard. I mean, 
do yourself a favor before you go into interview into an interview, think of something you really do want to improve and just cop to it. Because I don't know why those questions get asked because so often you get an inauthentic answer and everybody knows it. And it's like a game we play. So I just don't think that's, I don't think that's any more productive. But the last thing I will say is that reporters often, it is not a social conversation. So when they ask the question and you answer it, having used your talking points to support your pull through message and you're done, put a period on that sentence and wait for the next question. It is a very time honored tactic for the other person to stay silent and see if you'll feel uncomfortable and fill in the gap of the conversation. But you're not at a cocktail party. It's not your job to do that. You wait as long as it takes for them to ask the next question. Such great advice. And the other thing I did, and I just envisioned it again, I just finished watching Ted Lasso. So I (laughs) was picturing Ted in a presser (laughs) Um, or in like talking to the psychologist and sitting there waiting for her to ask him a question and she's not asking because she wants to see what he's going to say. Exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) I love it. All right. Perfect. So, well, actually, uh, I'm going to ask about your business book. But before that, when you want to share with us, I think you have a book, you have a podcast, you have you, you have a newsletter, you have you have all these things. All um, the things. So I would love I would, all the things. I would love to give you an opportunity to talk about. You mentioned your class. Um, do you want to talk about about your book or some, one of these other yeah, pieces that so- people can learn? All my things can be, my website is elisacp.com and you can find all my things. I do have a book, it was published in 2018 and it's very much off this topic, but it's Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism and uh, Advocacy for All. I co-wrote it with uh, Carolyn Geran and Jamia Wilson. And it's really about how to be a more effective everyday activist. It's not particularly partisan, although it has a point of view, but really it could be used for good or evil, I suppose, depending on your perspective. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's really about taking, if you felt fired up in these last five years, it's about helping you think about sustainable activism and sustainable advocacy for the issues in which you believe. And then I have my podcast is the op-ed page with Elisa Camort page. So it's a kind of a play on my name and that's everywhere you listen to podcasts. And my newsletter is called this Weekish. So every other week I do a newsletter and then a podcast and got all that going. Awesome. And then the course is on Gen Connect You. Those links will all be in the show notes. Um, for sure. Perfect. All right. So we like to, other than your own, <laughs> share, <laughs> ask our guests to share a business book that they are either currently into or have, you know, like still resonates and something maybe that you still go to. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit before I give you the business book. I will say that our culture is in great flux. That's actually the name of a great business book by April Wren, Flux, but that's not my recommendation. But our culture is in great flux. And to understand the cultural moment we're in and the forces at work that we as business people and as marketers should be aware of, I would recommend a book to learn about our cultural past. And that book is cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And it really kind of unveils some of the history in our country that has brought us to this moment of cultural change. And so I recommend it for any business person to understand the people they're trying to hire, the people they're trying to market to, the environment we're in that creates some of the really volatile cultural conversations that are going on. For actual business books, I'm going to recommend a pair of books about a superpower that I think is required to succeed during these times, which is empathy. And that is The Empathy Edge by Maria Ross and Radical Empathy by Dr. Terry Givens. They take a crack at it from different perspectives, but they really weave in a lot of personal narrative and use case studies and really explain that empathy isn't about being either a doormat or 
a weak leader, it's really a superpower strength if you can activate it and, you know, make the world a better place while you're running a better business. 100% agree with that. I learned that empathy is, I learned that I'm an empath over these last two years. I didn't, I mean, I think I kind of like felt that I cared about, you know, but I didn't really fully realize it until how affected I have been over so many things that have been going on. So Mm. those are really valuable books. So thanks for that share. We will include links to those as well um, in the show notes. Well, I, and I love, yeah, absolutely. And I'm so happy that we were able to meet and have you share some wisdom with our listeners. Well, it was my pleasure, Megan. Great to be here. Lovely. All right, friends. Thank you to Miss Jen Cole for being with us. Thank you if you're watching the replay or listening on the podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. We have one more episode in 2021. It'll be Dan Gingis. He's a repeat offender. He'll be friend and will be joining uh, Jen Cole and myself later this month. But I really appreciate all of you and Elisa for being with us. So thanks for being here for episode 95 of the Making a Marketer podcast, and we will catch you next time.